Jeff. Well, a very good morning to you all. Um, just before Christmas, uh, I met a man in a car park. Uh, it wasn't a, de a shady deal, but I bought from him a pair of speakers, because I'm a cheapskate. To add to the amplifier that I had recently bought on eBay, to combine with the turntable that I'd had for some time. Why all this? Right, and I also had to buy, sadly, some new speaker leads. Also that I could play some of my old vinyl. I was with friends last night and I said, do any of you remember Wishbone Ash? Anybody? <laughs> oh, good, there's a couple. Uh, and I put on my, well, actually, and I must confess this to him one day, it is actually my brother's LP of Wishbone Ash, which I <clears throat> borrowed from him about 40 years ago. Um, and as soon as it came on, time was the words. I was amazed. I can remember those words. It's the same with a lot of the pop songs from my youth. And I wasn't somebody, and I'm not somebody, who spends a lot of time listening to music. But it's the same, isn't it, with hymns. Um, if you've been brought up with certain hymns and sung them over and over, when the music begins, the words come back, don't they? There's something very special about a song and about singing. And if you have your Bibles open in front of you at Exodus and chapter 15, we've got before us here a song. And I hope this morning that we're going to get something of the, the meaning of the song. As, as Jeff read it, did you catch the sort of emotions that were being expressed? Did you catch that sense of victory, of celebration? This isn't a lament for the dead Egyptians. It's a shout of victory for what God has done. The people there um, had got to a, a, uh, a crossroads in their walk with God. It seems, we don't know the tune uh, to this song, uh, but we do know that tambourines and dancing were appropriate accompaniment. It must have been a quite a rousing celebration, mustn't it? A release of the tension of the previous weeks, those weeks when the plagues had afflicted Egypt, when the people had left Egypt. And it's okay sometimes just to celebrate. Uh, but this song, it's not here in the book of Exodus just to break up the text. It's not some sort of uh, intermission, some sort of half-time entertainment to separate the theology that's gone before and what is to follow. So we need to ask the question, well, why is it here? Why include a song at this point in the narrative? Uh, we believe that Moses wrote these books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the five books which make up the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. Why was it that Moses 
under the leading of the Holy Spirit, included this song here. What was the Spirit saying through Moses to those Israelites? And what is the same Spirit saying to us? I think we need to understand what it meant to the Israelites first before we can understand what it means to us. If you take a look uh, at the beginning and the end of the song, so in verses um, 1 and verses 18, just notice the tenses. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. It's past. But when we get to verse 19 or 18, and before it actually, the Lord will. It's future. This song takes us from looking back to looking forward. If you look, go through verses 5, 10, um, 5 and 10, we've got the deep waters have. In verse 10, you blew, the sea covered. But in verses 13 and 17, you will lead, you will bring them. It looks back and it looks forward. The past and the future. In fact, this chapter in Exodus sits at a hinge in the book of Exodus. Up to this point, the people have been in Egypt. They have now escaped from Egypt. The future at the end of the book, they are at Sinai. They are gathered round the mountain. And there's a whole lot of stuff about that. And in between times, there's the wilderness, the journey between Egypt and Sinai. It's a hinge in the book. It's an opportunity to pause and to look back and to look forward. So that gives us our two points for this morning. In verses uh, 1 to uh, 10, we're going to be looking back. And what I think the song is telling us is that the Lord has defeated his enemies. The Lord has defeated his enemies. Reflect for a moment uh, just on what has gone before this in the account in Exodus. After years of suffering oppression, the Israelites have been released. There was that fateful night, wasn't there? when the lamb was slaughtered, the people gathered in the house, the blood was daubed around the door, the angel of death passed over them. The people who were already dressed for escape rushed out in the middle of the night. Um, but chapter 14, which we looked at last week, tells us that still in Egypt, they were trapped God didn't take them by the shortest route. He took them a roundabout route, which brought them up against the Red Sea. The Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh and his army, his host, behind them. They were trapped. Just uh, as a, a quick aside, if you look in your Bibles when it says the Red Sea, down the bottom it will say Yom, Yom Suf, or something like that, which translates as Sea of Reeds. And there have been those who've said, oh, well, what really happened was the Israelites got to this marshy land and 
Uh, they got through because they were just walking, but the Israelites got stuck in the mud, and that was the end of it. Well, there are a lot of scholars now who, who say that Yamsuf doesn't just, well, may not mean Sea of Reeds, but Sea of the End. It's the sea at the end of Egypt. It's the border. And as we read the account, it's quite clear that it wasn't that the Egyptians got stuck in the mud, but that God defeated his enemies. And how did he do it? He did it purely by grace. He steps in miraculously and provides an escape. Now, we already know all of that. And chapter 15 doesn't tell us anything new, does it? It's more like pause to consider. And notice how the events are described, though, in the song. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. In verse 4, he has hurled into the sea. Verse 8, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. In verse 10, the sea covered them. There's a lot of emphasis, isn't there, on the water and the sea uh, and how it covers them. It's the very water that seemed to hem in the Israelites that saved them. The means, if you think back to the beginning of Exodus, that, mo that Pharaoh had chosen to destroy the Israelite babies, saying that male babies should be put in the Nile, that very water is now their deliverance. And surely, as we read this part of the, uh, of the song, we're supposed to think back to the flood, the one where Noah uh, was saved. Because the waters speak of judgment. They speak of death. They speak of passing through. And the Egyptians knew it. If you just look back to chapter 14 and verse um, 25, we read, the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They began to understand something of God. And they understood that God has defeated his enemies. Look how easy it is for God to do it. Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, it says that there were 600 of the best ones, I think it was, and then all the rest as well. This was the cutting-edge military technology of the ancient world. Did they cause God any problem? No. Hurled into the sea. Um, what about the... Uh, the very elite members of Pharaoh's army, the very best of his officers, drowned. Fell to the bottom of the sea like a stone, like lead in the mighty waters. They'd entered that, that sea in all the arrogance of fallen mankind. Look at what they said to themselves um, in verse 9. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide, I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But no, they were no match for God, simply by the 
um, the blast of his nostrils, not even blown from his mouth, but just the waters stood back and his breath made the sea cover them again. The Lord has defeated his enemies. Remember that key question in Exodus is, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? It's a question that Pharaoh asks way back in, in chapter 5. Who is Yahweh that I should worship him? Well, we get the answer, a part of the answer last week. Yahweh is the God who saves. Yahweh now is the God who defeats his enemy. And at the end of this first section of the song, all of the, the Israelites can sing is, who among the gods is like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. So God has indeed defeated his enemies. His people have escaped from Egypt. They've been redeemed out of oppression and slavery. They've passed through the waters of judgment, the waters of death. Truly, uh, as the Apostle Paul says uh, 2,000 years or so later, truly, uh, they have... They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And he tells us that these things were written for our benefit. But what next? If that is what has happened, the Lord has defeated his enemy, what next? Um, I said earlier that chapter 15 was a turning point. All the action taking place before this in Egypt... Chapters 19 to 40 are in Sinai, but they are in the middle. Before this point, the people have been in Egypt, but where is it that they're going? We know that they headed eventually for the promised land, uh, but that's not where Exodus leaves them. Exodus leaves them, with them still gathered at Sinai. The immediate um, destination is Sinai, and if we look at verses 13 and following, uh, we'll see that. Ultimately, the destination is to be God's dwelling place, his mountain, his sanctuary. And our second point then is that the Lord will dwell with his people. The Lord will dwell with his people. Look in verse 13, in your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. It doesn't say to, you know, wonderful houses in the land of Israel. It says to God's dwelling. Um, you will bring them in, this is verse 17, and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary. They're going to end, their ultimate um, place of, their ultimate destination is to be with God. Because the Lord will dwell with his people. And that's a glorious truth. Remember the question, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should worship him? 
He is the God who dwells with his people. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. But hang on, you might say, how is it that God can be so close? How can he dwell with his people? Hasn't Moses told us in his first book, in Genesis, that we've been thrown out of God's presence? Sin had entered the perfect world that God had created through the rebellion of Adam, hadn't it? Banished from the Garden of Eden, there was no way back. The cherubim and the sword guard the way back. Wanting to be like God, Adam is cursed to return to the dust from which he is made. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 3. But in our song, we read, there is now redemption. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. A price has been paid in verse 16 until the people you bought or you purchased pass by. There is redemption. God will indeed dwell with his people. Now, as they sang this song, the Israelites were facing the wilderness, the transition out of Egypt. In a few weeks, they'll be encamped around God's mountain, Sinai. Because of God's holiness, they'll have to keep their distance. There are all sorts of restrictions about how close they could come. Moses will be their mediator, going up to, up to, the, uh, to meet God on the mountain. They'll receive the law, the covenant. They will, then will come instructions about the tabernacle, which is sort of a movable mountain. It's a, a, a place where, um, figuratively, people can enter it back into the Garden of Eden back into God's very presence, but then only the priest, and only once a year. It's a means that God can dwell with his, pe with his people without his holiness um, destroying them. It's a place where their representative, the high priest, goes back into the garden and presents the blood that brings forgiveness. God's plan is to dwell with his people. Uh, over in chapter 29 and verse 46. Remember the key question. Who is Yahweh? And God says, they, that is the Israelites. Well, I'll read verse 45 as well. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? That God will dwell with his people. Um, but that for these Israelites is still ahead. They're in transition, in the wilderness, not yet at home. They're sojourners still. And sometimes life as a sojourner is tough. And they will go through a number of trials. We too are in that place, aren't we? We too are between what has gone before and what is still to come. We too face time in the wilderness. We too are sojourners. But like the Israelites, 
we need to remember and to celebrate that God has defeated his enemies. We are free from Egypt. They were free from slavery. We're free of the slavery of sin. They were free and passed through the, the waters of judgment. We have the prospect of resurrection, death being destroyed. But we're not yet home. Sadly, by the time uh, we get to the end of Moses' writings, to the book of Deuteronomy, things look a bit different. They've had the gracious provision. They've had the gracious provision of the law, the tabernacle, and the priestly office, but the people's hearts are still far from God. They've been to Sinai. They've known God's care and guidance. Yet, as Moses looks ahead, he sees not blessing, but cursing. He foresees the day when the people's rebellion will again lead to exile. And he prophesies that a new and a better covenant will be needed, where the people's hearts will be circumcised. Now, from our perspective, we can see what further lengths God has gone to in order to defeat his enemy and to dwell with his people. The events of Exodus are, in fact, pointers ahead to a better reality. It's not the sheep or the goat that was sacrificed at Passover, but the very Lamb of God who we look to. It's not the figurative passing through of the waters of death, but the actual death of the Lord Jesus and his glorious resurrection. And it's not a land flowing with milk and honey that we look forward to, but the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 uh, starts with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A glorious future ahead of us. Those Israelites knew and they sang that their opposition would be silenced. The people of Philistia, of Edom, of Moab, of Canaan, all would be silenced. And that was the case when they entered the land. We, who look to a better um, covenant, a better redemption, can know that our inheritance is certain. As we come uh, to a conclusion, let's just glance again and look at verses 19 to 21. Sort of a PS at the end of this song, this song of celebration. Verse 19 tells us, Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea. The Lord 
brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. It summarizes it. But then we read, then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them. At the beginning, Moses and the people of Israel sing. Here we've got Miriam singing to them. Instead of, in the first verse, because the, the verse 21 is almost exactly the same as verse 1, but instead of, I will sing, it is an instruction. Sing. Sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. It's as if this chapter is saying, consider what God has done, what he has done in the past, how he has defeated his enemy, how he will dwell with his people, and sing, respond in praise and in joy. If those Israelites, still on the edge of the wilderness, if they could sing of their deliverance, how much more should we, as we look to our greater deliverance in Christ? If they looked back to merely a lamb being slaughtered and could say that they had been purchased, how much more should we look back to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and how precious that blood is shed for us? And surely we should sing. We should let the Holy Spirit apply these truths to our hearts. We should dwell on them. And we should sing in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that like those Israelites, rather than sing, so often uh, we complain and we grumble and we look at the things around us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that just as uh, so many songs come back to us when we hear the music, that when we look at this song, we will pause and consider and think of all that you have done. You have defeated the enemies. You have defeated sin and death and judgment. And you will dwell with your people. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And you have prepared a place where we will dwell with you. And Father, we pray that as we allow those truths uh, to soak into our hearts and our lives, you will draw from us a response of worship that by your spirit you will keep us on uh, that path which leads to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.